Knowledge is power, and we are all about empowering the mamas of the world. In each episode, we will unravel and interpret the latest research and evidence-based practices for pregnancy, postpartum, and motherhood. As mums and researchers ourselves, we have experienced firsthand the overwhelming complexity of information, myths, and those classic old wives' tales. I'm Dr. Renee White. And I'm Dr. Mika Petucci. And And this this is The Science of Motherhood. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of the podcast. I am your host, Dr. Renee White, scientist and postpartum doula of Fill Your Cup in Melbourne, Victoria, Australia. My co-host, Dr. Mika Batucci, is currently on mat leave. However, I'm hoping she will join us in the very near future and I know she would have absolutely loved to have been part of this interview today with Dr. Pamela Douglas from Queensland, Australia. She is, oh man, I cannot wait for you to listen to this interview. Let's Let's just say that we only got through half the content and I knew this was going to be the case. We were absolutely going to run out of time before we ran out of topics. You may know Dr. Pamela Douglas from the Discontented Little Baby book. She authored this book, which I only just recently read having been into my fourth year of my postpartum life. And can I just tell you, it made so much sense to me. She has literally turned the baby industry, I think, on its head. And she does this so beautifully and eloquently through evidence-based research. She backs up everything with research She works as an Australian general practitioner since 1987, having a particular interest in sexual health, women's health and mental health. She's actually also an associate professor with the Centre for Maternity, Newborn and Families Research Centre at the MHIQ at Griffith University and a senior lecturer in the discipline of general practice at the University of Queensland. But more importantly, I think she is the founder and director of the non-profit organisation and charity Possums for Mothers and Babies. And this is essentially the gateway of how I came across Pam. She started this organisation, as you will hear from our interview, when she saw practices with the First Peoples Nation and realised that you know, there was something amiss in Western culture. We seem to be over-medicalising the mother-baby dyad. And so for the past 15 years, Pam, with various teams, has developed and published the pioneering evidence base for what's termed neuroprotective developmental care or NDC. And that was later, I guess, you know, for want of a better word, rebranded as the Possums Program. You will hear in our interview that we discuss topics like reflux and colic, 
um, and breastfeeding and we will absolutely be talking in a second part around sleep and also the phenomenon of sensory boredom, which I find is a very fascinating topic, um, typically not really thought about when it comes to babies cry fussing and things like that. So I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Um, It was just a really beautiful discussion. And as Pam describes, you know, this is Possums as a charity organisation. So if you would like to donate to this wonderful charity, head over to the website possumsonline.com. And just letting you know also that if you are a registered practitioner, you can become a possums registered practitioner as well through an accreditation program. However, if you're someone like myself who still works in the space of mother care as a postpartum doula or a breastfeeding and or lactation consultant, they have just started a new program called Possum Champions. And you essentially can do the same training as the accredited practitioners. However, there's no examination per se after that training. So I'm very much looking forward to starting that training with Pam and Renee Keogh, who is also very well known within the Possums organisation. So without further ado, here is Dr. Pamela Douglas. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Pamela Douglas. Thank you so much for joining us today. My great pleasure, Renee. Thanks for having me. Now, for all those playing at home, Dr. Pamela Douglas is the director of the Possums Clinic and a GP and someone who I have had a very, very keen interest in for quite some time. So how did I come to understand about possums and yourself? Well, my business partner, uh, Dr. Mika Batucci and co-host of this podcast, who couldn't be here today, she's actually enjoying the baby snuggles of her second born. She put me onto your book, The Discontented Little Baby Book. Yeah. And I read that after I had a baby. So, you know, three years down the track and I had a lot of aha moments and a lot of, oh, wow. Yes, that totally makes sense now. I completely understand why that had happened. And also a few moments of, I'm so glad I trusted my gut with particular scenarios, particularly the feed place sleep thing, which is what we're going to discuss today in this in this podcast. And I wanted to know, so Dr. Douglas, you're a mother of six, is that right? Well, I do have two children that I gave birth to and yep. a total of four stepchildren and then lots of gorgeous grandchildren spread across those six. That's amazing. So I I would love to know, it's kind of a chicken and the egg question. What came first, your interest in the field of infant sleep and feeding or were you as a mother started to kind of get these inklings or innate kind of feelings about how sleep and feeding was being 
maybe expressed to you as as a mother, the shoulds and should nots? Or was there a series of events or patients that you saw in your clinic where you kind of thought, hold on a minute, there's something very interesting going on here? Yes, well, even clinically before I had my own children, I was very interested in the way our society, the way my own health system managed pregnancy, birth and those early days of of raising a baby. Probably, Renee, it's important to say that my, my very first job in the community as a GP was in an Aboriginal Islander Community Health Service. So it was in the context of being a GP for First Nations peoples. And that cross-cultural experience has has really been formative throughout the rest of my life. I learned a lot from our First Nations people when I was a young GP, a young woman, even prior to having my own children. I also had uh, uh, one older female friend in particular who had a brood of six kids, had two babies over those years when I was working in Indigenous health. And her style of mothering those babies was quite influential for me as well. But then once I had my own two over a period of, well, you know, they're, they're barely two years apart, mm. uh, of course, I'd done, I did the deep dive into this extraordinary and transformative experience that so many of us as women are privileged to experience that transition through that, the rite of passage of um, becoming a mother and caring for those babies. At the same time, when I moved back into the clinic, and I did that fairly quickly in a very part-time way, of course, I was seeing many women with babies themselves and began to gather up the stories really out of my own circles of friends, women with small children, and out of the clinic, and moved into what turned out to be a PhD. So I was gathering up stories of this extraordinary and transformative time of life that somehow, particularly back then, Renee, so I had my 292, and back then there was there was a, an absence of women telling the story about this transformative time of life out of their own personal or embodied experiences, certainly not written about in women's creative writing, not really written about in women's memoir. There was a taboo of silence back then. And and I saw how in the absence, if you like, of what you might call a cultural imaginary, which, which is a term that talks about the kind of images and representations that inspire us and that give us hope that speak to the human condition. So in, in terms of the cultural imaginary, we we don't, particularly back then, but it's still, I think, absolutely true today, that we don't have images and stories of really empowered mythical figures doing this rite of passage to inspire us. And in that context, in that sort of absence of a cultural imaginary, which is truly historically constructed, you know, it goes back a long time, the, the devaluing of this time of life. In the absence of, of a, a cultural imaginary that explains to us how heroic this journey is for us, how, how it calls on everything that, that we've ever been and takes us into places that we could never have imagined and how, how it does require of us 
you know, a certain kind of heroism, really, it became clear that in the absence of that cultural imaginary, my own profession had stepped in and the care of mothers and babies has been highly medicalised. So, of course, one of the, the, the wonderful aspects to um, medical advance over the last century has been the incredible um, improvement in care uh, from a medical point of view that's offered to mothers and babies. So when my um, nana, let's say, was born at the turn of the 20th century, her life expectancy was somewhere in her 50s, I think. And, uh, you know, her babies had a really high risk of dying in the first five years of life. And we've seen a major transformation there. And particularly here in our advanced economy, with truly despite all the the bumps, um, one of the best health systems in the world. We're really very good at protecting women from death and injury and childbirth, protecting our babies' health and well-being in these early weeks and months and years of life. But we still haven't, we still haven't focused in our research, in our understandings on that getting in sync hormonally. Um, but, but you know, it's 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 not just hormones. It's much bigger than that. It's it's this whole psychobiological getting in sync between a mother and a baby and indeed between parents and babies. That's not been an area of research focus. So I suppose I've, I'm trying to say two things there. When I was a, a young woman, both in my clinical experience and then in my personal experience, I could see that this was a feminist issue, that, that this time of life was historically devalued and that played out in a kind of shift of power to my own profession in the way that we imagined this time of life, that we didn't have overriding narratives around exactly how heroic this, this life journey through um, pregnancy, giving birth in those very early years is, and, and that therefore there's been a great deal of over-medicalisation, even as we value the human right of having access, because of course in many parts of the world women don't have access the way they, they they should to good medical care. So there's both how wonderful that is that we have that, but but it has gone too far. There is extensive over-medicalisation in the care of mothers and babies. It's a very long answer to your question. <laughs> I, hope, I hope that's, that's of interest. No, that, that was wonderful. And thank you so much for sharing that with us. It's 110% agree with everything that you, you said. And, and to be honest with you, I think it's a really good segue into my next question, which is that, you know, I feel that we live in a world where a, a lot of people need a solution to a problem. And, you know, that's in their everyday life. And perhaps, when it comes to having children and, and, you know, mothers step into this new role, it's completely new. You know, the baby's crying or fussing and it's viewed as a problem in quotation marks, you know, air quotes. But the thing that I really love about your book is the fact that you have put such a huge emphasis and understanding on the focus of normalising the normal behaviours of an infant. And I completely understand that 
you know, and I went through this as a first time parent, it can be so frustrating to actually take a step back and go, oh, that's actually normal and accept that that's normal because you're tired and you're sore and you're overwhelmed by this whole new little human being that's, you know, doing all these things that you don't understand because we cannot communicate with them the way we like to communicate, which is through words. And so that requires a lot of patience and self-belief and letting go. And so what I would love for you to describe now to the listeners is, you know, in the book, you talk about how in the first 16 weeks, how it's normal for babies to cry a lot due to what you term a great neurological sensitivity. Are you able to describe What's actually happening during those first 16 weeks with the baby? And and by understanding these biological phenomena as parents, what can what can we do to support our babies during that first 16 weeks? And in turn, I think understanding ourselves, the normality of those events. Yeah, okay. So there's there's a lot there. Um, yeah, so there's a lot to unpack. Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Um, we are likely to have lots of thoughts about it just happens. It's how the human brain seems to work. Lots of thoughts that we're not up to this, that I'm a bad mother, I'm failing at this, I'm not cut out for this, I can't do this for a single moment. So our our problem-solving human brain is likely to get very active with a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of cognitions, a lot of thoughts in there that are the, you know, would seem to be the exact opposite from self-belief. I would say that's normal, but we do want to have some strategies around how to see what's going on inside our brain and not get hooked up with it, not necessarily believe our brain, but know that brains you know, particularly in times of, of, of sort of exhaustion and stress, brains get very, very active. That's normal, often with a lot of unhelpful thoughts. We don't have to believe it. We can bring our attention back into the present moment over and over and over, just like falling into the present moment. And then those little behaviours, step by step, minute by minute, that align with our values, the kind of uh, mother that we want to be, the, the kind of, you know, person that we want to be, the kind of self-care that we want to bring to ourselves. So I suppose I'd, I'd kind of want to be reassuring and say self-belief, lack of self-belief is really normal at this time of life. But we start experimenting our way through, practice enormous self-compassion, practice not believing everything that goes on in our minds, even though we, you know, usually can't switch our mind off, but we can keep bringing our attention back into the present moment and behave in a way that's aligned with who we want to be, our parenting values, our values as a woman. So that's the first thing to say, because otherwise what happens is that women start to beat themselves up because they don't have self-belief. Well, you know, the truth is it's pretty normal, you know, to, to have no, you know, no idea what's going on. And we just come back into the present moment over and over and start experimenting. So that was one thing I wanted to say. Now, the first 16 weeks of life is, it's true, a time of real, I frame it as a time of neurological sensitivity, which is what you were saying, Renee. And we know if we look at international research that it is a time when babies 
tend to initiate cries, you know, quite frequently. Uh, it, it's a fundamental communication, isn't it, of a bubby? They they dial up the sympathetic nervous system's dialing up, and and will dial up into a cry if if we haven't been able to get in there before they're crying. We give it a go. We can't always. Um, but actually, it's worth noting that also internationally, durations of cries in the first 16 weeks is culturally variable. So it's impacted upon by infant care strategies. And, you know, I mentioned that I had such formative experiences working with First Nations communities. And it really was the case said to me over and over by various First Nations people back then, or in fact, um, Annette Hamilton had had done some very sensitive anthropological work with a Northern First Nations community around caring for babies. And it was clear that on the whole, in, in more traditional contexts, First Nations babies didn't cry, and or at least not, not the same crying durations that we see in Western societies. And that's been borne out by other studies. In fact, a big systematic review a couple of years ago of crying durations really showed that crying durations is, is um, variable according to infant care strategies. So, for instance, babies cry twice as much in London as in Denmark. And, you know, it's the London infant care strategies do tend to have a focus on routinized approach. There's much much lower breastfeeding rates, less responsive care, and also less physical contact. So the London parents, I'm thinking now of one particular 2006 study, which then fed into this bigger systematic review. The London parents held their babies on average for six hours in a 24-hour period compared to, say, 10 hours in a 24-hour period in Copenhagen, where there was much higher rates of breastfeeding and a much greater emphasis on responsive care. So although there's this neurological sensitivity in the first 16 weeks, and although babies will cry, they'll sometimes get into crying loops where the sympathetic nervous system turns on so much sympathetic nervous system activity in this loop that, that we often just you know, have to deep breathe ourselves and hold them and wait. But actually, there's typically quite a lot that we can do to dial our little ones down in that sensitive period of time. And so one of the big areas in which I published 2005 was bringing out, showing the theoretical frames, bringing out and doing preliminary evaluations around the possum's five-domain approach to cry-fuss problems. So looking at the baby who cries excessively is a complex, very distressing for parents because we're hardwired to be upset when our babies cry. Uh, and, and so we put the, the neuroprotective developmental care practitioners, the NDC accredited practitioners, put in place this five-domain approach. And typically we can make things feel more manageable for families. But we, we do that without needing to resort to a whole range of diagnoses that are often applied, which lack an evidence base very often. And of course, we don't want to be missing true medical conditions. It's absolutely vital that we have that checkup with the local GP or other health professional and often the GP will make sure that there's nothing else going on. But in fact, often there's a lot of over-medicalisation of the baby's behaviour. 
and we can help dial the little ones down and make the the day so much more enjoyable for that primary carer and so much more manageable for the family if we use these multilateral approaches. So another long answer, Renee. <laughs> am I am I on track? No, no, no. They no, no, no. They they're fantastic and I'll let you know that I have actually um I've started doing some of the workshops through possums and I'm going to be one of the possums champions oh, starting great. training next week. Great. So yes, that's great. The the diagrams that you were kind of mentioning, I have um I have had a look at that in your presentation and it, it does and it's so true because, you know, it's not nothing when it comes to, I think, you know, human beings, nothing's a silver bullet. You know, you, you do not have to just change one thing yeah. and, you know, the problem is solved. Yeah. It's it's so multifactorial That's- and it it all f- feeds into one another. It just that's what I mean. When I was reading your book, I was like, this totally makes sense to me. I'm so pleased you had that response. So many light bulb moments. I, just on that, so one of the things that I found absolutely fascinating and I I never actually personally experienced this with my daughter, but I know a lot of friends who did, the reflux and colic phenomenon. And I wanted to read a passage from your book, if you will just bear with me for a second, because I, I, when I read this passage, I was just like, oh my goodness. Okay, this is very interesting. So for anyone who has the book, it's on page 37 under this subheading, Is It Reflux? And I know that this is a highly controversial topic in society. And I feel like there's a lot of misdiagnosis and overdiagnosis. Yeah. And so in the passage, it says, the first thing to note as we embark upon the controversial topic of gastroesophageal reflux disease, often referred to as GORD for short, is that milk reflux is more or less pH neutral, certainly not particularly acidic for the first couple of hours after a feed. The acid in any stomach content, that is any reflux, that runs up into the esophagus and even spills out of the baby's mouth is thoroughly buffered by milk, whether breast milk or formula. And the next passage goes into a section where you had submitted this these results in a medical journal and there was a a dispute with one of the reviewers or editor which for all those playing at home when you when you conduct research and you want to publish it it needs to go and get peer-reviewed by people within the same industry and you get those comments back and there's a to and fro to and fro and you all come to agreement and finally it gets published in some sort of form that you hope (laughs) that you still like that's right Um, (laughs) that's right and so you you then write in the book, once the professor who edited a medical journal disputed this in a paper I'd submitted, he cited a couple of studies and I had to point out that those studies were performed on older infants who had not fed for more than two hours. I directed him to other studies on babies in the first few months of life and he conceded my point. The acidity and toxicity of reflux over time depends on how often babies are fed and with what. 
Fruit juice, for instance, is highly acidic when it refluxes. And nowadays we recognise that it is not suitable for That's babies. Right. Exclamation That's mark, right. end quote. Yeah. When I read this, I, I just was like, yeah, of course, that totally makes sense. And then you have you've eloquently written around the concept of reflux and colic in your book and you also talk about treatments which fall into the category of proton inhibitors as like a, a standard treatment over the counter kind of things that people can can give their babies i was wondering if you were able to describe what your thoughts are around you know, this concept that everyone is so fixated around it. And to me, I'll I'll let you know my point of view as a postpartum doula and a scientist, I feel like going back to that, we all see problems and solutions and it's the baby's crying, the baby's crying. And then we go, oh, it must be colic because it makes us feel better as human beings to be able to put the problem in a bucket and go yep we've named it okay that's what it must be and then also that societal pressure of you know people are looking on going is everything okay are they all right and you're like oh it's okay they've just got colic and it then puts that person at ease it makes you feel like there's less judgment because you're as a mother, you're like, it's not that I'm not doing anything. It's just, you know, it's colic or reflux. That's the, that's my, that's, and definitely a lot of girlfriends of mine in those positions have just fallen on, I guess, the sword of it's colic or reflux. Can you talk to us about what your opinion is about what's going on in those situations and the use of these proton inhibitors and quite possibly the effects of those? Mm -hmm. Well, let's start with that. Um, They're not – for adults, I think – Perhaps they're more available over the counter, but but certainly not for babies. So they are a script. They're, in fact, what we call off-label prescribing because not available on the PBS, if you like. But but it's it's really clear in in the evidence, like it's proven, that proton pump inhibitors don't decrease unsettled infant behaviour, crying, the kinds of fussy behaviours you know, still quite commonly labelled as, as reflux or gastroesophageal reflux disease. So it's it's clear that the proton pump inhibitors don't help babies. They don't. We have to remember that there's something like a 40 to 50% placebo effect when it comes to how parents report the effects of interventions with crying babies. So the wow, that's fascinating. The placebo effect. So it's it's not parents aren't crazy, but there's neurobiological reasons for this. It's the neurobiological power of expectation. It's how brains are wired. So the placebo effect is something we have to pay attention to, and it is huge in this field that we're talking about. So there's that. Now also. I've been saying for a very long time that unfortunately the proton pump inhibitors aren't as benign as we've thought. It's been clear to me from way, way back that a proton pump inhibitors increase the pH of the stomach, that decreases the breakdown of proteins, food proteins coming through in, in the milk. And it means that, and it also alters the PPIs, alter mucosal permeability, gut permeability. So we're more likely to have 
um, uh, these large proteins cross over and actually stimulate allergic responses within the baby. So it's it's also quite clearly demonstrated in very large studies now that the use of proton pump inhibitors in infants increases the risk of allergy down the track. They also increase the risk of, of bone fracture in later childhood, depending on its dose related. It's thought that the increase in the risk of asthma relates to the increased risk of allergy. So we, we know that, that the PPIs alter the gut microbiome, decrease the diversity of the gut microbiome and so forth. So, so they're not the kind of benign intervention that, that everyone you know, has tended to think. All medications have side effects and PPIs, you know, in adults, if we, if we stop them, we get rebound acidic secretions and can get rebound headaches and so on. In babies, you know, we need to be careful about weaning them off the PPIs, not doing it suddenly because of similar concerns. So, you know, really it's, it's, it's so clear in the research literature that PPIs are not appropriate under six months of age and arguably not under 12 months of age, but certainly not under six months of age. It's so clear that there's been quite a bit of research now looking at why they're still being prescribed, actually. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that they're still being prescribed because health professionals want to help. You know, it's what you were saying, Renee. We really want to, to make a difference. And, and because we don't have alternative strategies to help, then then we think, look, let's, let's give this a a try, let's write the script and see what happens. So I've been very focused um, in, in my professional life on creating alternative strategies that, that actually I propose do help. And, and that's the suite of programs that we call neuroprotective developmental care or the possums programs, and they're outlined in, in the book, the Discontented Little Baby book. And I might even just mention some of this because it might be really helpful for the listeners, although I have to acknowledge that when a mother hears me say this, and let's say the bubby has been really unsettled and bubby is on the PPIs, it can be really like it's upsetting. You don't know what to believe. You get so much conflicting advice. You don't want to yep. use a medication that might even have side effects, but desperate to try something. And I think we have to be really compassionate with ourselves. It might be that we we simply don't stop. You know, we should never stop a PPI without talking to the prescribing physician and being properly weaned off. But, um, you know, in a lot of the work I do, I, I don't necessarily ask that parents should stop their PPIs. We just focus on the things that I think are really useful and that can actually address that unsettled behaviour. Because babies will fuss a lot at the breast, not because they've got pain from, from the esophagus, not because they've got allergy even in the gut, not because they've got gut pain, but they'll fuss a lot at the breast when there's positional instability with the breast feeding, when there's breast tissue drag, when that little one can't quite get 
really stable, fitting into the woman's body. And I would argue this is a huge breastfeeding challenge that we still do very, very poorly in the health system because clinical breastfeeding research has not been a priority. And so we've, you know, a lot of the interventions that are used in breastfeeding at the moment and and similarly that are used with this fussiness at the breast come out of outdated biomechanical models, actually. So, so you know, that would be one thing that, that I'm immediately looking at if the baby's fussing a lot at the breast, not thinking esophagus, not thinking pain, but thinking, oh, what can we do to get this little one stable? We also need to be mindful that there'll be plenty of times when the little one just doesn't want to be there, wants to see the world, you know, is is hungry for a sensory adventure. And if we're saying to parents, you know, let's say three hourly feed times, and that touches on the feed play sleep cycle that that I think you mentioned to me perhaps before we started to record. But if we've got the idea that now is feed time and I've got to get milk into my bubby or my bubby won't gain weight, then of course we start to get a little bit, you know, a little bit coercive. Come on, sweetheart, we've just got to get more milk in. That wasn't enough. And that can quickly develop a conditioned dialing up at the breast in that bubby. So frequent flexible feeds just whenever knowing that you can't overfeed a breastfed baby you can offer 10 minutes after you just offered but also not feeling that you have to have the baby on for long because you've got to get out to a coffee date or your older child needs you that sense of very frequent flexible offer without pressure on any particular feed Mm -hmm. can actually also be something worth knowing if your bubby's fussing a lot at the breast and people have said, oh, it must be reflux or allergy. There's a a range of other strategies too, Renee, that our NDC accredited practitioners put in place, but I'm hoping that I've touched on a couple of the big things that are really worrying for parents. Yeah. I might just draw a line under that there, but but hopefully that gives some useful information anyway. Absolutely. And look, that was going to be my next question. You know, um, I saw in one of your presentations that 95% of women would like to breastfeed, you know, going into their postpartum journey. However, I think the statistic was 34% exclusively breastfeeding at that 16-week postpartum mm, 39%, mark. that's right, 39 Yeah, yeah. and 39%. Yeah. Yeah. And And I, you know, I think you've just touched on, I was curious to understand what your thoughts were for the reasons around that rapid drop in statistics. And, you know, is it something where we need more antenatal education or is it, or probably both, we need more postpartum support? Because I I know from my personal experience and and the mothers that I look after um, as a postpartum doula, you know, we talk about the fact that it is a natural process, but it does not come naturally. Mm. And the resounding kind of boom that I hear from everyone is no one told me it was going to be this hard. And so you've touched on the fact that there's just not a lot of research on kind of, you know, that breastfeeding journey. What are your thoughts around those drop-in statistics? What 
what would you recommend mums do who are, you know, first-time, second-time mums? Because you could easily breastfeed one child and the second one comes along and there's difficulties because there's a whole new human being um, who's who's part of the diet now. Yes, that's right. It's always a shock second time round when there are problems. Yes. Because you'd think, okay, I've got it down pat now. Yeah, I'm I'm a veteran at this. That's right. But the baby, you know, even in terms of... um, facial structure can be different our bodies change that yep. the fit changes little temperaments different so yeah it's always a shock that second time third time fourth time round you know when suddenly yeah. it becomes really hard and, and you wouldn't have thought it would be you know Renee there's been work looking at why why parents do start to introduce formula why why they you know need to actually and Parents report, well, the woman's pain, nipple pain, breast pain's huge. Worries about supply and often that manifests as really fussy behaviour that they notice dials down, you know, with a bottle. It's very disheartening. But, you know, these are the reasons that, that parents give. So supply, pain and an unsettled behaviour. Those are three really big reasons. And so what that, that research says to me is that women are really wanting to breastfeed but strike these obstacles around how you do it that just make it impossible, you know. So pain, it's such a huge thing. And, and nipple pain is also highly inappropriately medicalized at the moment. In fact, I've just got a paper. Once we've finished this podcast, I've just got to do a little bit more work on the proofs, but um, that, you know, that shows that we're seriously overdiagnosing thrush, for instance, with nipple pain. And, and of course, I argue that this is because we've run out of tools as health professionals. We don't quite know how to pick up the repetitive microtrauma that comes with breast tissue drag. Folks will say the latch and that the latch and positioning is absolutely fine, but if we use the the Gestalt lens, the lens that we're using in our possums programs, you know, a particular biomechanical model and approach, then we see, yep, we can deal with this underlying breast tissue drag and a woman begins to heal and doesn't need to take these long, long courses of anti-thrush medication that that we know from the research really isn't making a difference. With the passage of time, you know, there, there may be resolution anyway. So pain is huge and I'd argue that, that there's such widespread experience of nipple pain. I won't even touch on mastitis right now, but because... because you know, how to fit a woman and her baby together is still a research frontier. We've got the new work coming out. We kind of guess this, but there is a new systematic review and also a new RCT that shows that the baby-led approaches do modestly decrease the risk of nipple pain if they're put in place from birth, but they're clearly not a, a whole solution and they're not an actual intervention when problems arise so in, in our Gestalt work, we integrate those, you know, very important baby-led concepts, switching on the baby's mammalian reflexes, but we build more on that because there's so much more that women and their babies need to get pain-free, efficient breastfeeding happening. So that's pain. Unsettled behaviour we've already talked about anyway, but in desperation, when there, there aren't other things to turn to that seem to help parents 
might start checking out a bottle of formula. And, and unfortunately, because so many of our breastfeeding problems aren't picked up, it can seem as though babies become more settled with formula. But what we want to do, of course, is to be bringing in really effective tools to help with the breastfeed, to help with the unsettled baby behaviour. And we're not needing to bring in perhaps formula in that same way. The whole issue of, of um, concern about supply, it's huge, isn't it? And again, speaks yeah. to our lack of clinical breastfeeding research. So I think the reason why, in summary, Renee, I'm giving you very <laughs> long-winded answers here, but in summary, I think the reason why parents are introducing formula is a health system problem. It's not any, you know, parents try so hard, women try so incredibly hard to make breastfeeding work against, there is such raw heroism that I see over and over in the clinic as women really try to make breastfeeding work. They know the bubby, so good for the bubby, often unless you've got a sort of condition dialing up, that they know the bubby absolutely loves it. And even with a condition dialing up, I'd argue the baby loves it, but there's something else happening as well. So women try so hard. I would say we're letting them down because as a system, we're not prioritising the research in terms of how to care for these. This is why we set up a charity at Possums because there's just not external funding available, you know, for community-based innovative care of the mothers and babies across these domains of breastfeeding, cry, fuss, problems, sleep. There's just not research funding available. So, yes, I would say the reason why there's such a drop-off is not women are trying so hard, and I get a bit cross when it's suggested women aren't persevering because women just give it their all. But the health system is letting women down. We don't have the clinical skills to be able to deal with these, you know, really quite distressing problems that women encounter around breastfeeding, but it often is all interconnected with cry fuss problems and sleep problems as well. And I guess Absolutely. that's, and so therefore, this is my life passion, really. This is where I've directed so much of my professional life to trying to, to develop up the clinical tools, but then share them, educate other health professionals and those providers and educators, the doulas, you know, the, the breastfeeding counsellors with our, our new NDC for providers and educators, we're hoping to respond to all those others who may not be directly operating as, as uh, in the ARPRA registered health professional space, but who are giving such vital care to women and their babies on the ground. So it's quite exciting to be stepping into a space where we're able to offer that. And I'm so excited that you're going to be participating, Renee. So that's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was, I was just so excited when it became available because I'm quite good friends with Katie Parker, who I know is a registered and accredited possums practitioner yeah, yeah. here in Victoria. And she alerted me to the fact that the Possums Champion program was now available for people like myself. So yeah, absolutely yeah. jumped at the opportunity. Yeah, no, that's that's great. Yeah, I'm mindful of your time and I, I will de I've definitely got lots. I knew this was going to happen. We've got more topics than time. So we are most likely going to split this into a two-part series. But I'm just going to um, finish off with a few rapid fire. I'm going to okay, keep some okay. for part two I'm ready. as well. Uh, <laughs> So, to burp or not to burp? No burp. No burping. And I, I feel quite, you know. Passionate about well, that. Well, the, the yeah. trick is, you know I support 
women and parents in whatever they are deciding is best for themselves. But from a research point of view, absolutely no evidence to suggest it's useful. It's culturally specific. Most human cultures don't burp and it can be very disruptive. So you're told to burp to try to help the baby be less settled, but it actually can very often contribute to more unsettled behaviour because it interferes with that lovely sort of dialing down of the sympathetic nervous system and dialing up of the parasympathetic nervous system that comes at the end of a feed. Yeah, I always found it quite distressing when she had fallen asleep at the breast and I was like, how am I supposed to burp her? I'm going to wake her up. I need, like, I'm exhausted. I need to put her back in the bassinet. It's three o'clock in the morning, you know? Okay. What is your greatest piece or most proudest piece of research? Well, a lot of what I do is, is theoretical reframing, which has not been a, a sort of sexy part of research, but I would argue it's where the real thinking happens. And of course, the, the, the very forward thinking researchers argue that if we don't get our theoretical frames right, we are wasting research dollars. And a lot of research is wasted research because it's it's not framed in cohesive ways. The, the data is interpreted through lenses that aren't being critically analysed because there's the data, but then there's how we make sense of the data. And often we make sense of the data through particular, you could say biases, but through particular lenses. So theoretical reframing is critical in the care of mothers and babies. And I've done a lot of that, although we've also done, you know, modest amounts of evaluations. But so if I look at the theoretical reframing, it's it's hard to pull out what I think is, you know, a, a most treasured contribution. But in this context, I'd like to mention a theoretical paper that was it it was it did was a huge investment of my life and it it looks at um there'd been a call by an international society in autism research for work around what a preemptive intervention for a baby who was at risk of autism for instance due to having a sibling who who was diagnosed with autism or indeed a parent who was diagnosed? What would a preemptive intervention perhaps look like? And and so I um, showed that actually, if we look at what it be like to optimise neurodevelopmental outcome for a little bubby at risk, it would look like neuroprotective developmental care or our programs. And that that paper is freely available online. It's open access. Think preemptive intervention for autism spectrum disorder I think you'd that's okay we'll definitely put it in the show notes um for you bring it up pretty quickly yeah and on our website which has so much free material now as well as our programs for parents you'll find a page that says for when my baby's at risk of autism and you can actually we've got the parent support hub that has a wealth of videos and and workbooks and materials for parents also linking everyone up in a big closed Facebook page that people tell me they really really enjoy but in there there's a a little workbook around how might I use these programs if I'm expecting a baby who's who's at familial risk of ASD and so you can find a page that just sort of talks about that and directs you through on our website so I think I think that would be the paper that I'd offer you, Renee, in response to your question. 
Okay, perfect. And our final question, which we ask all of our guests, what do you have on your bedside table? Oh, how interesting. (laughs) Well, how interesting. Well, I do have actually prehistoric images of, um, so, so it's, it's, I don't know exactly how old it is, but it's likely to be many thousands of years old. It was found in a market in Europe and it's it's like a Venus of Willendorf figure, one of those ancient figures of the female divine. I must say I've got two. There's that one which is very old and very, very powerful, but my daughter also gave me a contemporary version of so a contemporary remake of again one of those images of the female divine that was was quite widespread in parts of Europe millennia ago. You know these are images, uh, and and in that second image the woman is holding her breasts, which which you might imagine a lactating breast. You know, and and these are images of I like to think you know of of empowered transition through this rite of passage, perhaps in societies without romanticising it, but in societies that had more of a sense of this being a sacred time for women and therefore for the whole of our society. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, My pleasure. Yeah. Okay, we're going to wrap up now. Where can we find out more about Possums? And you've already alluded to the fact that Possums is a charity. So if any of the listeners would like to access these resources, donate to Possums, where can we find you? Uh, Possumsonline.com. That's the main website. You'll find how to find an NDC practitioner there. You'll find lots of free resources, videos, blogs. You'll find the Possums Baby and Toddler Sleep Program, the Gestalt Breastfeeding Online Self-Help. You'll find the Parent Hub. We also have the possumsclinic.com website, which takes parents into an online possums clinic where you can book for consultations. And also, of course, that website takes you through to the Brisbane Possums Clinic. Yeah, so it's possumsonline.com. That's that's the place to visit. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Pamela Douglas. Um, We will be back for part two later in a, a few episodes in this series, but thank you so much for your wonderful time. Thanks, Renee. It's a pleasure. Thanks. If you loved this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a review. If you know someone out there who would also love to listen to this episode, please hit the share button so they can benefit from it as well. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. If you would like to contact us, we are at ifillyourcup.com or you can DM us at ifillyourcup underscore via Instagram. You can find all of our services, including our postpartum in-home care and our Fill Your Freezer meal delivery service as well through both those channels. Thanks so much for listening.